Friends, nothing has hurt the cause of Christ more than churches of half-hearted, disintegrated believers. Churches who offer the world a distorted portrait of the life and ways of Jesus and the nature of God. This portrait now hangs in many churches. It's why so many choose to walk away, why so many choose not to enter. Our choice not to live integrated lives has left the most critical question lingering for many. The question is, who is Jesus? Is he the Jesus being marketed by verses on a billboard in multi-million dollar campaigns and worn, by trendy, worn on trendy t-shirts? Is Jesus' nature like those who stand on street corners with signs and megaphones declaring response of repentance for the, for the immediate impending apocalypse? Is he the one behind the outreach nights at churches, the carnivals, the giveaways, the bouncy castles and all the other promotions to get people to come? Is he the Jesus whom the megachurch pastors proclaim in their messages and worldwide broadcasts? Is he the one on the big stage with the lights and the fog machines? Who is Jesus? Most in Australia have simply moved on, no longer trying to answer this vital question, no longer trying to reconcile all that's said about Jesus or what's being done in his name. And as confused as the watching world might be, those of us who claim to know him seem to be as equally confused about who he is and the life that he's called us to live. In his book, All In, Mark Batterson says this, most people in most churches think they are following Jesus, but I'm not so sure. They may think they're following Jesus, but the reality is this, they've invited Jesus to follow them. They call him saviour, but never surrendered to him as Lord. Ouch. Integration is how one commits to faithfully living the entirety of our lives for Christ as his apprentices. An integrated life is not a life that's lived perfectly, but a life that is lived authentically. Our pursuit of a life of integration is the journey towards wholeness or Christ-likeness. A divided life is reflective of us, but wholeness is reflective of who God is. It's where we demonstrate love with justice, judgment with grace, power with peace, integration, wholeness, intersection, interweaving, intertwining. Integration, friends, not disintegration. It's where we choose to live a divided life no more, breaking down the walls between what we believe and the ways that we choose to behave. How we act, how we treat others, how we neighbour, how we consume, how we love, how we judge, how we take responsibility. How we do all of these things and much more, our life integrated around the life and ways of Jesus. And the early apprentices of Jesus were all in. All in. What about you? When it comes to living an integrated life, Joseph was also all in. Joseph not only on a journey towards wholeness, he's on a journey now towards slavery in Egypt. And Genesis 37 verse 1 tells us that these are the generations of Jacob. Joseph was a dreamer, a dreamer who dreamed of ruling over Israel, a dreamer who dreamed that all creation would bow before him, 
a dreamer cloaked in his father's favouritism but yet made to wear his brother's jealousy. He came to that which was his own and his own people did not receive him. Joseph was conspired against by his brothers, thrown into a pit, sold into slavery, thought dead by his father Jacob. But now Joseph has arrived safely in Egypt, sold as a slave to the captain of Pharaoh's guard. Last week, if you were with us, we considered the life of Judah. Through Judah come the promises of God. We saw that Jesus is a son of Judah. But it was Judah who sold Joseph into slavery and Judah who managed to make a mess of his own life. Through a genetically complex web of lies and deceit, Judah was caught up, or should I say caught, with his pants down. Yet despite this sordid, wicked, hypocritical mess of lust, desire, grief, loss and desperation, we saw God keeping his promises, promises that God made to Abraham now fulfilled in Christ. You see, beyond our fallen humanity, friends, and beyond our situational hopelessness, operates the left hand of God. God at work now behind the scenes, working in our mess for his eternal plans, working in the details for his glorious purposes. And we need to keep that in mind, don't we? Especially when we come to chapter 39, especially when our circumstances want to tell us otherwise. Joseph was brought to Egypt, but it's not like he went there to see the pyramids. Joseph was brought to Egypt against his will, sold into slavery by his own brothers, brought to Egypt by the Ishmaelites, then bought as a slave by Potiphar. Joseph now works for Potiphar, but Potiphar works for Pharaoh. Joseph, who once dreamed of ruling over Israel, is now an Egyptian servant in Pharaoh's service. But I want you to notice what it says with me, friends, in verse 2. Can you see that there? The Lord was with Joseph. Now I know that you know that I know that you know that as believers of Jesus, God is with us. Emmanuel means God with us. God's spirit dwells within us. God dwells among us. His people. And so, friends, this side of eternity, God can't be any more with us than he already is. God promises to be with us, God with us. And as believers, that's what we believe, right? It's also what the scriptures tell us, Matthew 28, verse 20. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. But have your circumstances ever, the things that you've been going through lately, the stuff that you've had to deal with recently, all the garbage and the carry-on and the nonsense and the inconsiderateness and the incompetence of others ever at all, possibly, maybe, just once, made you question that God is with you at all? Even if it was just for a brief moment that God has abandoned you like everybody else does. Maybe it's just me. Genesis 39 verse 2 tells us that the Lord was with Joseph, but if anyone ever had any reason at all to question it, a reason to question God's presence with them because of their outward circumstances, then surely, friends, it was Joseph. Now a slave because of God's revelation, 
an orphan and a foreigner because of his dreams. Genesis 39 invites us to look beyond this moment and to see things from God's sovereign perspective. When we lift our eyes beyond the temporal and the temporary, beyond these light and momentary troubles, we begin to see the left hand of God. God at work in our lives behind the scenes because of the Lord's promises to Abraham. The Lord, friends, was with Joseph. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you'll be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you, and him who dishonours you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God makes his promises to Abraham. See it there? I will bless you. And God makes his promises to the nations is also through Abraham. See it there? I will bless those who bless you. As the son of the promises to Abraham, the Lord is with Joseph. How might our lives begin to look differently if we started to live like God was with us? How might might our lives begin to look differently if we started living like God was with us? Instead of only seeing our limiting circumstances, we might actually start seeing the work of God. And that's the invitation here, isn't it, in verse 2? The Lord was with Joseph and he became a successful man. He was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. And so Joseph found favour in his sight and attended him and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. Do you see it? The left hand of God working in the details. God keeping his promises to Abraham. The Lord blesses Potiphar through Joseph, God's promises to the nations through Abraham. And so Joseph's success is now Potiphar's success. The once favourite son of Jacob is now the favourite slave of Potiphar. Joseph has fallen into favour again, God with Joseph and Potiphar knows it. Like Laban profited from all of Jacob's labour, increasing the size of his flock under Jacob's care, from his farmhouse now to his outhouse, Potiphar is also blessed. An Egyptian, friends, enjoying the blessings of God on everything that belongs to him. I mean, the only concern that Potiphar has, his only hesitation with Joseph is his diet. But beyond that, Can you see it there? Joseph's got the run of the house. Everything belonging to Potiphar was now his. Joseph was put in charge of everything. A Hebrew slave in charge over the house of Egypt. But not everybody at home got that memo. Joseph also found favour elsewhere. Can you see that with me? Verse 6. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, 
and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept anything from me except for you, because you are his wife. Favoured by the Lord, favoured by his father Jacob, favoured by his master Potiphar, Joseph is now favoured by Potiphar's wife. Well, she fancies him more than favours him. But she wants Joseph to do her a favour as well, and so she's none too subtle about it. Obviously, Joseph carries with him the blessings of God, but he's also blessed with divinely good looks, handsome in form and appearance. Joseph gets his appeal from his mother. Potiphar sees Joseph as God's blessing, but Potiphar's wife sees Joseph as God's gift. And she's been desiring him all this time. She knows what she wants, and what she wants is Joseph. And so she's direct and straight to the point. See it there? Lie with me. Yes, friends, it's exactly what you think it is. She could have at least offered to buy him a drink first. But when Joseph refuses her sordid advances, she persists in her harassment of him. Look there, won't you? Verse 10. And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. See there, Joseph didn't just refuse her once. He refused her on a daily basis. Joseph was in charge of everything in Potiphar's house. Everything doesn't mean everything though, does it? There are boundaries. There are exceptions. All of us have been given limitations and restrictions. I mean, just because you're in charge of something doesn't mean that you can take personal liberties with things. Just because you're in management doesn't mean you can knock off whatever you like. Joseph had access in Potiphar's house to everything. He could touch everything that belonged to Potiphar except for one thing that was off limits to him, Mrs. Potiphar. Maybe she's got a daughter named Stacy. Look there, verse 8. Behold, because of me, my master has no concerns about anything in the house and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept anything back from me except for you because you are his wife. Joseph isn't going to give in to temptation. He isn't going to succumb to desire. And friends, while these are the generations of Jacob, chapter 37, verse 1, Joseph's no longer following old familiar family patterns, is he? And I mean, we've read something like this before, haven't we? In Genesis. Genesis is the story that's always on repeat. The repetition and resonance of this narrative along with the themes of temptation and desire are very strong throughout the book. Can you see it? Not within a beautiful garden, but now inside a beautiful palace. Not with Eve, but now with another woman, appealing to the aesthetics and the basics of human drives. Not to eat of forbidden fruit, but to taste of forbidden pleasure. And yet there is a world of difference between the situation in the garden and in the situation in Potiphar's house. 
because with eyes wide open, Adam was created from the hand of God himself, took his eyes off the presence of God and fell for the temptation offered by his wife, eating from the forbidden tree, promised the knowledge of good and evil. Adam's actions brought disaster into the world, a knowledge that proved not only his downfall, friends, but also ours. But now Joseph shows by his actions and later on he will show in this book the demonstration by his words that his knowledge of good and evil is very different to that of Adam's. Despite the temptation of his circumstances, Joseph refuses to do evil. This wouldn't just be a sin against Potiphar. For Joseph, it would be a sin against God. Listen to Joseph's response to temptation and desire. Verse 9. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Even though his outward circumstances told him otherwise, even though he had every right to question God's presence with him, although sin was a daily temptation for him, Joseph wouldn't do it. Joseph lived with God at the centre of his life. He lived an integrated life of wholeness. God impacted everything that he did and said. What's sad and ironic here is that Joseph valued Potiphar's trust and his wife didn't. But before we finish with the comparisons here, how different is Joseph now compared with Judah? Joseph flees from sin's seduction, but Judah walks straight into sin's deceptive trap. Of course, every tension has its breaking point. Unresolved issues always seem to resurface. It was the 17th century English playwright William Congreve who wrote the play The Morning Bride. You might be familiar with its popular saying, but the actual line from the play reads like this. Heaven has no rage like love to hatred turned, nor hell a fury like a woman scorned. Potiphar's wife waits patiently for her moment. And now the coast is clear. And so she seizes her opportunity with Joseph. Look there with me, verse 11. But one day, when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. I want you to see it, friends. There are no witnesses to this story other than you and I, as readers of the narrative. There's no one else here in order to verify the details of what takes place. But you can. She grabs Joseph by his coat, offering herself again in her familiar proposition. But Joseph's now got his Nikes on. Instead of hanging around, he flees for the exit in a timely and fashionable manner. Because instead of holding on to Joseph, Potiphar's wife is now left holding on to his coat. This family just keep leaving their clothing behind. And Joseph keeps on losing his coat. His first robe was forcibly taken from him by his hate-filled brothers. His second robe now forcibly taken from him by a lust-driven woman. Like Judah, Joseph loses his identifying items. Unlike Judah, Joseph maintains his integrity. 
when she realises that Joseph won't lie with her, Potiphar's wife starts lying all by herself. And what she wanted secretly to do, when what she wanted to happen secretly didn't happen, she starts broadcasting to everyone as though it really did. Instantly she changes her story, doesn't she? No longer is she the aggressor. Now she plays the role of helpless victim. She blames her husband and then she plays the race card. Look there, verse 13. See, he has brought among us, that's Potiphar, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. Now she starts telling lies to her husband. I wonder if you can hear any more echoes here of what took place in Eden. Finally, she blames Joseph as well, producing his coat now as evidence against him. For the third time in these generations of Jacob, clothes have been used as false evidence. Joseph's bloodstained coat was used to deceive Jacob. Tamar's clothing was used to deceive Judah. Joseph's garment used to deceive Potiphar. Joseph's first coat, it was one of distinction. Presumably his second robe was one as well. A coat that was befitting a chief steward. Potiphar would have recognised its owner immediately. But it was Potiphar's wife who committed the offence. Excuse me. <coughs> it was Potiphar's wife who committed the offence. Joseph has done the right thing. But unjustly now, Joseph has to pay for it having already been rejected by his own family and having suffered the humiliation of slavery, Joseph now faces further humiliation of being sent to prison, his life continually descending into chaos. But I want you to look with me again at verse 21. Verse 21. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favour in the sight of the keeper of the prison. Although he's done nothing wrong and everything appears to be going wrong for him, the Lord was with Joseph. Joseph might have descended now into prison, but now he's in charge of the prison that he's in. God's showing his steadfast love to Joseph, God's favour displayed through him. With countless opportunities to question God's presence and plenty of offers for him to go astray, Joseph continued to live an integrated life. He did not compartmentalise his faith. The Lord was with Joseph and Joseph lived his whole life that way. He lived out what it is that he believed. And God was at work behind the scenes despite all the evidence to the contrary, regardless of, ex of his external circumstances. Friends, this is the left hand of God. God at work in the mess for his eternal plans. God at work in the details for his glorious purposes. Jesus' life was one also of rapid decline and descent. He was stripped of his robe and falsely accused by his brothers. Jesus also suffered unjust humiliation, sentenced not to prison, but to death by Roman crucifixion. 
And yet while his circumstances caused him to question God's presence with him in the darkest of his hours, Jesus did not sin. No deceit was found in his mouth. He didn't repay the wrongs done to him, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. When it comes to living an integrated life, Jesus, not Joseph, is the one that we should follow. You see, friends, Jesus was all in. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honourable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Some people walk away from the church. Others never come in because we don't live integrated lives. But our lives need to be integrated, made whole, not compartmentalised, not fractured or discombobulated or something that we just do for an hour on Sunday. Because the gospel isn't about trying to wedge a little more Jesus into our already crazy lives. But about God bringing the way of his crazy kingdom into our frantically dysfunctional patterns of living. An integrated life is lived out in the world so as to represent God's true nature and our calling to become more like him. Will you pray with me? Now, Father, we want to confess this morning before you that we do not live a whole and integrated life. That there are still areas of our life that we cordon off for ourselves. Things that we do in secret that we don't want others to know of. Things that we don't want others to see or others to know about. Father, will you forgive us? Would you help us be people who bring the whole offering, not just partial? Would you, be help, would you help us to be people who live the gospel that we believe? Would you help us to remove the barriers that exist between what we believe and the way that we behave? Help us to live out the life and the way of Jesus openly in the community so that others might see and know your nature, Lord God, and that others would be drawn to following you and your way. So help us, Lord Jesus, in the way that we act, in the way that we treat others, in how we neighbour, in how we consume in how we love and judge and take responsibility. Help us to be people who are all in because you were all in for us.
And we ask it now in Jesus' name. Amen.